Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, Ari Pesco interviews Bill Hogan, Raymond Plank Professor of Global Energy Policy and Research Director of the Harvard Electricity Policy Group at the Harvard Kennedy School. They discuss electricity market design and PJM's proposal to reform price formation in its reserve markets. We hope you enjoy the podcast. This is Ari Pesco, Director of the Electricity Law Initiative, and I'm pleased to be joined by Bill Hogan, who is going to help us understand PJM's recent 848-page filing at FERC detailing its reserve market pricing reform proposal. Bill, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Ari. Uh, So before we get into PJM's filing, which includes a paper by Bill and his colleague uh, Susan Pope, I want to discuss some of the principles that inform electricity market design. The goal here is to unite physics with economics. We have power flows that behave according to physical laws, and we have generators and consumers that we assume act rationally in the face of economic incentives. And I've heard you say, Bill, numerous times that market design has to get the prices right. So let's start with that. What does it mean to get the prices right? Well, the, um, the basic uh, framework is an economic efficiency uh, framework, uh, maximizing uh, the benefits minus the costs. And within that framework, uh, the uh, sort of simple-minded uh, case with just a single product is uh, the place where uh, you get the efficient outcome is where supply and demand intersect. And you get a price which is the marginal cost um, of supply uh, equals the marginal benefit of demand. And that basic conceptual idea extends to multiple products, multiple locations, multiple time periods, all the other uh, complications that arise in the electricity system. So in the first instance, I would say uh, getting the prices right is trying to get prices to reflect the marginal cost of economic dispatch. So we start with this concept of uh, setting the price to the marginal cost of the marginal generator. Um, And how do we then incorporate, how does market design then incorporate the physical realities of the power system? The fact that we have, you know, hundreds of generators interconnected across a a transmission network that has its own physical parameters. How is that then reflected in market design? Well, uh, we're we're very fortunate that um, over the years, the, before we uh, tried to introduce uh, open access and competitive markets, the uh, people running the utility system had developed this general framework of economic dispatch. And the basic idea is that you have the costs of different kinds of generators, uh, they're located in different places, they're connected by a transmission grid, and you have uh, tools which can describe all of those interactions, and these are where readily available. And then you can choose for any level of demand, uh, you can choose the dispatch of all of the power plants that incorporates the effects of transmission constraints and ramping constraints and all the other factors that um, have an influence on the ability of the system to provide power to meet the demand. And in the process of doing that efficiently, by minimizing the the costs associated with uh, doing that. One of the byproducts that comes out of that is this estimate of what we refer to as the marginal cost or the locational price 
which reflects uh, at every location the marginal cost of meeting an increment of demand of that location if we redispatch the entire system. Um, this is conceptually not a trivial calculation, uh, but conceptually it's not a big leap from just the simple uh, supply-demand story I mentioned before. And so when you have this, uh, this, you're able to mathematically represent this physical system. Um, how do we then um, connect that to getting consumers and producers to do what we want them to do? Is there some, uh, does this sort of, how do we connect that physical system to uh, the prices that people are paying? Well, there are, uh, there are many um, levels of detail packed into that question, um, but uh, uh, the first thing and the most important thing is to look at the short term. Um, so we have short term and uh, scheduling and then longer term investment decisions, but the short term is literally uh, real time right now here with the lights staying on. Um, we want the uh, prices to reflect the uh, real economic opportunities and in under some reasonable simplifying assumptions if you solve for the economic dispatch and you get these locational prices uh, and then you use those prices in the settlements and so generators get paid these prices and loads get charged these prices um, you will have the situation where Everyone um, is better off, every individually, given those prices, everyone is better off following the economic dispatch. So they don't have incentives to deviate and do other things that are possibly beneficial to them but harmful to the aggregate uh, system. And that's, what, that's the characteristic of prices which are sometimes referred to as supporting the solution. So they actually are consistent with the economic dispatch solution. So that's in real time, and that's the first thing. So that's the real time market, and that's the critical point that everybody has an in, that the prices send the right incentives to all the actors to do what they're supposed to do. Um, but in these markets, and at least in this country, we have a real time market, and we also have a day ahead market. So how does that come into play? So uh, uh, the day ahead market is a, is essentially a scheduling and hedging market. I mean. No power is delivered day ahead. It's all delivered in real time. And what you, uh, uh, the basic principle that's followed is to uh, run a day ahead market that's consistent with the real time. So the basic you know, structure is very similar to the economic dispatch. Um, we have uh, generators make offers for how much it's going to cost uh, for them to produce, and loads make estimates of their total uh, demand. And we solve that day ahead schedule, and that gives uh, energy schedules uh, and prices, and there's a settlement the day ahead. Then in, you can think of those as, for the most part, uh, financial contracts, um, which are then going to be settled uh, relative to the real time. So we get to the real time, and if you generate more or less than you were scheduled uh, in the day ahead, you buy or sell, uh, uh, sell or buy, actually the reverse, uh, uh, from the generator um, at the real-time prices. So in the uh, unusual case where the real-time is exactly the same quantities as the day ahead uh, schedule for someone, then they don't pay anything or uh, get paid anything different at the real-time. 
But if they deviate, then they get charged into real-time prices. Do we have good data to suggest that um, what people say they're going to do day ahead actually reflects what they really do in the real-time market the next day? Well, we hope not, um, because uh, the real-time market is, of course, uncertain day ahead. And so uh, we want them to adapt uh, to the actual conditions that exist in real time as opposed to stick to where they are with their day ahead schedule. Um, so uh, what, you, what you really would like to have is people adjusting depending on the weather and all the other things that happen um, between day ahead and real time. Uh, a more relevant test is how do the prices turn out to be on average? Um, do the prices tend to converge so that um, on, on average, the, the day-ahead prices are, are approximately equal to the expected value of the real-time prices. And the evidence there is that you know, it's not perfect because there's uh, risk aversion and other things, but uh, largely speaking, the answer is yes, they do converge. And the better the market design, the more likely they are to converge. And that's a sign that it's healthy, the markets are consistent, healthy, and working well. And you, you, you characterized the day ahead. You said you could think of it as sort of a, I think, a financial uh, market. Um, is it also fair to say that the, that the one purpose of the day ahead market is just to allow generators and other market participants sort of to prepare just as a matter of just sort of business practice and making sure that uh, they're sort of ready to perform in the real-time market and can make those commitments? Yes, I mean, there actually are some decisions that actually have to be made a day ahead or earlier. Um, for some plants, unit commitment decisions have to be made um, to make sure that they're going to be online. Um, fuel procurement may be uh, part of the story, um, as is being discussed in New England. So, yes, there's, there certainly gives them signals and information, and they should be taking actions to prepare, and in some cases, making decisions which are uh, then they're going to have to live with because it's too late in the real time to change those decisions. So I think this is all sort of background to help us get to what's really at issue in the PJM filing, which is the reserve market. And so um, tell us a little bit about what the what is that market, what, what purpose is it serving? Well, the discussion we've been having uh, so far at a high level uh, of uh, generality is really focused on the energy uh, the production of electricity and the energy market and energy prices and all that kind of thing. Um, because of the uncertainty that I talked about, um, there are, uh, in addition to the actual production of power from generators, uh, over short horizons, you need to keep a certain amount of capacity uh, on reserve uh, not producing energy, but that could produce energy relatively quickly in uh, a few minutes later uh, or an hour later or something, depending on what happens. So we, we're, we're doing an economic dispatch. It's real time. It's uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we're scheduling for the next hour, let's say. Um, and then at 2.10, something happens. And if you haven't, uh, demand goes up, uh, the, the sun goes over and the solar stops generating, um, a transmission line falls down, all kinds of things can happen. Um, and then oh, you have to respond very quickly in order to be able to keep supply and demand in constant balance. And so all, op all electrical systems, uh, in addition to the generators that are producing energy, have generators and other demand response reserves 
um, that can respond with varying um, lag times, but often some of them are synchronized and instantaneously available, uh, that have to be maintained in order to meet these uh, forecast errors, essentially, that are going to happen over a short period of time. So it's really where we as consumers are willing to pay for this reserve product because we value the reliability of the system, that it's always going to work, and this reserve market is there to sort of help make sure that that's a reality. Right. It's, it's, it's necessary uh, in order to keep the lights on. If you didn't have reserves, uh, you know, then as soon as something happened, a generator tripped off and was, suddenly wasn't available, unexpected, um, and you didn't have anything to quickly respond to it, well, that would then create a cascading failure and propagate through the system. Uh, so we can't allow that to happen. And so what we're talking about in this proposal is specifically how PJM, which is the market, it spans across 13 states in the mid-Atlantic part of the country, um, is how they procure these reserve products. Um, and in their recent filing, they are asking FERC to find that the current mechanisms they use for buying these reserve products is unjust and unreasonable. That's the standard in federal law that, that FERC has to follow. Um, and so as I understand it, and, and, and please correct me here when I get this wrong, um, right now uh, there's at least two different products right now in this reserve market. There's what PJM calls Tier 1 and Tier 2 reserves. And the Tier 1 products are from generators who are actually already part of the energy market but have sort of room to spare. They can generate more energy if PJM asks them to, and they can do it, I think, within 10 minutes. That's the Tier 1 product. And then there's this Tier 2 product, which I think are, 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 are generators that are just sort of waiting in reserve but aren't actually part of the energy market right now. Do I have that roughly correct so far? Uh, the, I, my, I think the way I would describe Tier 1 is pretty much the way you described it. Uh, tier 2 is, is the, the principal difference is, is that um, these generators actually would find it economic to participate in the generation, to generate electricity, but we need to hold them because of locational requirements or other uh, uh, special conditions. We need to hold them off uh, so, because we need them for reserves. So they're losing money. Uh, they're, they're, they're losing, they have an opportunity cost because we're not allowing them to produce uh, electricity uh, and generate, and we're not paying them to produce electricity and generate, so there's an opportunity cost. And it, so in, in theory, Tier 1 resources don't face this opportunity, the same opportunity cost, although th that's arguable on their part. Uh, but the, by definition, the Tier 2 resources do uh, face this opportunity cost. And these are short-term synchronized uh, reserves. There's also some longer-term reserves that are important. So let's just on this point about Tier one, tier 2 resources, excuse me, um, they are getting paid for this reserve product, though, right? They would just be paid more if they were allowed to, to sell into the energy market? Well, it's, um, the, the Tier 2 uh, reserves are paid um, based on an opportunity cost story. It's, it's an, an estimate of what, how much they're losing and then trying to compensate them. Um, but the Tier 1 resources are not paid. Um, the Tier 2 resources have an obligation to respond. The Tier 1 resources don't have an obligation to respond. The performance of the Tier 2 reserves is much better than the performance of the Tier 1 reserves. So uh, for all of those reasons, we have a kind of breakdown in the, the theory of uh, market efficiency. Uh, in, in principle, um, just as with uh, energy, 
um, people who are providing reserves would see, re receive the same marginal uh, price. They would see the same marginal price and all there would be a single, if it was a system-wide requirement, there would be a single price for reserves and everybody would get paid. Not some get paid and some don't get paid. Everyone would have the same obligations for the reserves that they're providing. Um, not some have one set of obligations and the performance metrics would be much closer, more closely aligned and more connected to the physics rather than the poor incentives. So um, the, the, um, as I understand the numbers, essentially only about half of the synchronized reserves are actually getting compensated uh, in this process and that's just uh, in, 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 suppose we had energy suppliers and we said, well, um, you're a, a renewable energy supplier, uh, you're a wind resource, your marginal costs are zero, so we're not going to pay you for your energy. We're just going to take it. That would be the way we treat tier one resources. You can see by analogy this would be problematic. <laughs> so there's multiple inefficiencies right now is, is what you're saying. Yes. Um, resources are not being treated similarly. In, in FERC speak, this is unjust and unreasonable, but from your description you might say this is also unduly discriminatory in a sense. It's, um, it's, it's discriminatory, it's inefficient, um, it uh, produces uh, low performance results. I mean, it gets all. I mean, it produces all the bad things that you would think if you had an inefficient market. From the consumer perspective, lights are staying on in PJM despite these inefficiencies. Um, do we think right now that consumers are paying too much for this reserve service, or, or too little? Is there a way to look at it from that perspective? Um, the uh, there, there's a couple of things that are packed into that question. So. Um, there's a distinction between, I, I would make a very important distinction between what consumers are paying and what society is, uh, and the cost of society. So, and those are not the same thing. And so you could have a situation where um, the costs are higher um, because of the way we're running the system, but the prices are lower. Uh, both of those things can happen at the same time. So imagine we, we said, well, what we'll do is we'll subsidize some very expensive resources, and then we'll, but we won't uh, charge customers for the prices for those resources at the margin. Um, and we will then take the increased cost of those resources and socialize them and spread them across everybody so people, so it's kind of hidden. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then you would end up and you'd say, gee, prices are low and uh, this is, consumers are paying less. Well, the total cost of the system are actually higher uh, than you need to do um, because you're acting essentially like, uh, in this case, a monopsony um, uh, or a monopoly behavior and, and on the generator side. And uh, that's inconsistent with efficient, efficient markets. Um, and what we want is efficient markets, not minimum payments by consumers. And mm -hmm. we want minimum costs for society. That's the, and then the prices and, and the incentives that people see at the margin could be all different. So the problem right now is that the costs are higher than they need to be um, mm -hmm. because the system operators then have to compensate for the fact that the tier one resources are not performing. So they then order other generators to um, out of merit, and they essentially equivalent to hiring more tier two stuff resources than they need um, in order to 
um, make sure they meet the reliability standards. And some of that is done through out-of-market payments, uh, which the federal regulators have long recognized as problematic. And you have to do it sometimes, but it's a symptom of a fundamental problem in the market. And those out-of-market payments are charged to customers through various kinds of uplifts and socialized. Uh, so it's not so much that the uh, lights go out more often, it's just that the total cost of society of keeping the lights on is increased. Right, because the bottom line for PJM is that it's going to do what it needs to do to keep the lights on. Yes. And it can, it can I guess is what you're saying, is it can either try to do that in an economically efficient way, or it can do what it's doing now and have to take various actions that aren't quite reflected in prices and ultimately cost more to society. Right. Um, so we have the tier one, the tier two, we've mentioned those, and then you, you mentioned briefly that there's these, this other thing, the non-synchronized reserves, and by synchronized you mean uh, they're sort of, in a sense, they're, they're slower to be able to respond to PJM's uh, dispatch signals. Are those non-synchronized reserves, are they part of the problem as well, or is that just a separate issue that we're not touching well, on Well, there, the, the tier one, tier two story is, uh, is the primary focus, um, and then the treatment of other kinds of reserves and pricing of that is, uh, it's a similar set of problems, but it's not, a, it's not quite as acute as uh, for these synchronized reserves. Okay. Um, so that's the case, we've talked about the case then about why the current system is unjust and unreasonable. That's the first thing that FERC has to conclude. Um, do you think there's going to be um, any pushback on that point, or is this sort of, do you feel like there's broad recognition in the market that whatever they're doing now is just, as you've described, it's inefficient, it's not working, this should be a slam dunk case in your mind, or is there any, I think there'll be any pushback on this? Um, those are not mutually exclusive options. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> So uh, it's it's long been recognized uh, for I mean since certainly more than ten years ago maybe more than fifteen years ago that there was a problem in the way we were pricing reserves and pricing scarcity in the real time market in particular and then by connection to the day ahead market and internal inconsistencies this is not news um, and. Um, but uh, it's been deferred and deferred that the problems have been deferred while we were dealing with other problems. Uh, the policy agenda was crowded and uh, the couldn't deal with everything at the, the same time. So a lot of attention, for example, has been devoted to improving uh, capacity markets, which are another long-term. It's a separate podcast. We'll get to that yeah. some other time. Right. But it's, uh, it was, so it's not that this, this is not news um, that there's a problem. Um, the problem is just beca is becoming more acute as time goes on, and it becomes especially more uh, a matter of concern as we get more and more uh, intermittent resources uh, coming onto the system, because that creates this short run volatility uh, that I talked about, where you're looking ahead in you know, five minutes or ten minutes or an hour, and then you a lot more things can happen, um, and you have to respond to those. Uh, so the uh, the reserve situation becomes more and more important. And um, it would have been my preference to have addressed, to, to make the PJM filing 10 years ago, um, but um, it's now, they've done it now, and uh, it's certainly not uh, too early. So before we get into what's, what the proposed solution is, I just, there's one more thing I want to try to connect to this, which is was something that was on FERC's agenda, and FERC did 
issue an order about, which is called Order 825, which had to do with scarcity pricing or shortage pricing. Um, and my understanding of that was that it required PJM and the other market operators um, to make sure that the dispatch interval was matching the settlement interval. So I think PJM, for example, I think the other markets do this as well, is they may dispatch resources every five minutes because, as you mentioned, the things change very quickly and they have to be able to react quickly to what's happening on the system. And they also wanted to make sure the prices reflected the value that these resources were providing. So is there any connection between that shortage pricing issue and the reserve pricing issue we're talking about here? Or am I, am I going to barking up the wrong tree here? Um, well, they're not, uh, they're, they're not the same issue, um, but they're obviously um, if you're changing the dispatch every five minutes, um, then you're changing the prices every five minutes, certainly for energy. And um, if you have a settlements uh, system, which is based on an hourly average, uh, then this is going to create a lot of funny incentives, um, particularly around uh, the end of the hour or something like that, where people might uh, have a chance. Uh, the prices are either they think they're going to be high or low on average, and they start having an incentive to deviate, even though the actual price shouldn't be the same as the average uh, price at this time. So that creates lots of problems. Um, they're not uh, insurmountable, but the obvious solution is to make the settlement system consistent with the pricing system. And, and that's what FERC did right. in 825. Right. And that logic applies to energy and it applies to reserves. So they're connected in that regard. So you would want um, yeah, under underpinning all of this and as part of the what PJM has done and is planning to continue is what's called co-optimization. So when they're tr dispatching energy and dispatching reserves. They do those simultaneously, deciding on what's, who's generating and whose reserves. And they're trying to get the overall um, benefit maximizing solution uh, for each one of those things. And then they get a set of prices that are consistent um, for uh, reserves and for energy. That, and that co-optimization, that's part of the filing that's certainly yes. discussed in this well, filing. Well, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's already been part of PJM's practice and its existing procedures. So they, what they've said in their filing, as I recall, is we're going to continue to, to okay. do the co-optimization, but they're just changing the description of the reserve pricing part of the story. So what's what's the key features then of the of the proposal? How, how are they changing the reserve market? They're getting rid of Tier 1 and Tier 2, and what's going to replace it? Well, they'll have um, uh, uh, synchronized reserve, non-synchronized reserves, 30 minutes. There are different categories that are staged. And um, the, uh, the different categories in real time I'm talking about are um, based on the lead time for response. Um, and so, so some generators are going to have to be ready right away. And then some others can be ready uh, in was it somewhere up to 10 minutes and then others in 30 minutes. And, um, and then they're looking at the uncertainties over those periods of time. And they're also, uh, which they've, they've done things like this all along. I mean, this is not, the, the notion that there are different time periods and different types of response is not new. It's just trying to be a little bit more uh, formal about this uh, and to connect it to the uncertainties. Um, and then um, uh, they're going to, uh, the, the pricing mechanism is a, what's referred to as a cascade model. So, um, Synchronized reserves can meet the synchronized reserve requirements. They can also meet the 10-minute reserve requirements. 
they can also meet the 30-minute reserve requirements because as long as they haven't been used, I mean, as long as they're still there. So they get, there's a cascade effect so that the price of the synchronized reserves, which are the most valuable ones, will never be lower than the price to some of the other two and so forth. Uh, so you don't get this problem they had in California a few years back where they got price reversals because they didn't recognize this cascading uh, effect. So that's all part of the design. Um, and then uh, the, the, there are two critical issues uh, here that, they're, that are addressed in the uh, filing. One is um, uh, the um, penalty, what's referred to in PJM as the penalty factors. So there's a, for each one of these categories, there's a minimum reserve requirement. And then the question is, if you're now going to go below that minimum reserve requirement, what's the penalty factor? Because they're going to take action in order to get you back up, up so that you have the minimum reserve requirement. And then the question is, how much are you paying uh, for those actions? Um, and um, the penalty factor they've selected based on um, the kinds of actions they're taking, other pricing rules that come from their tariff uh, is the, the, the new factor they're proposing is $2,000 per megawatt hour. And that's a penalty that a generator would pay if it's uh, not performing? Uh, no, this is, this is not for generators not performing. This is the, uh, it's called a penalty factor for historical reasons, okay. uh, but it's the, uh, you can think of it as the value of the operating reserves when you get into, the, you know, how much would you be willing to pay to get an increment of operating reserves, you'd be willing to pay whatever you're doing to avoid the penalty, in some sense, the system as a whole. And the penalty as loosely is the emergency actions that they have to take or other kinds of things. So it's, think of it as, uh, as how much uh, you'd be willing to pay for an increment of reserves when you get down to a very low level. Um, so that's one thing, and they've, uh, there's an explanation of both the history and how it compares with other emergency actions and other uh, prices that can set um, uh, energy prices and all of those uh, uh, details. Um, and then the second question, which is problematic, is that the existing penalty factor structure has a minimum level of operating reserves and a low penalty factor, so they're raising it from $850 to $2,000 with a penalty factor. But they also have um, a, a cliff at the minimum reserves. So if you're one megawatt below the minimum reserves under the current system, uh, you, the, the charge is $850 that's uh, allocated to the price of reserves. That's what you pay for reserves. Um, and if you're one megawatt above the $850, then the price falls dramatically because you, um, you hit this cliff. And um, this uh, is another fundamental problem in thinking about that because if you, if you think about the question and say, well, how much am I, would I be willing to pay for an increment of reserves if I go above the minimum reserves? Well, the answer isn't going to be zero, you know, so it shouldn't fall away. There must be some value to those reserves. And, and, it's, and it's relevant for a variety of reasons why that, that you should be trying to represent that. And the uh, way I think about it and the way people have thought about this for a very long time, this is not a new idea, um, is that, well, there's over the next period that we're talking about, 10 minutes for 10 minute reserves, 30 minutes, you know, the hour for the 30 minute reserves and these different uh, uh, uncertainties, um, there's some chance that things are going to happen. 
And if things happen, we'll get into the penalty range again and during that period of time. Whereas if I could buy an increment of reserves now, then I would reduce the chance that I would actually get into that penalty situation over the horizon that we're planning for. Uh, and so the marginal value, how much would I be willing to pay now for reserves, should be the penalty factor times the probability that we're going to have to pay the penalty factor. And that's the where you get this loss of load probability story um, above the minimum reserve level and uh, multiplied times the penalty factor. And what this does is it produces this funny shape, <laughs> but it's because of the way the system is operated. If you get below the minimum reserve levels, they will act now. Um, if you're above the minimum reserve levels, you may have to act later. <laughs> um, uh, but, in, but in answering the question, the, he asked the same question in both situations, which is, how much would I be willing to pay now for an increment of operating reserves? When you're below the level, you pay the penalty, you'd be willing to pay the penalty factor. When you're above the minimum level, it should be based on the probability that you'll get in this situation later. And that's why you get this kind of uh, shape. And, and that produces some, with something that looks like a demand curve. You know, it falls off gradually. Um, and it has a number of other advantages uh, because um, one of the just practical problems is that if you uh, don't have something like this and you're requiring them to decide you're in a shortage condition or not, you get a lot of discretion uh, that gets imposed on the system operators about uh, are we in shortage conditions or not? And there's a lot of pressure for them to say no. And so that tends to depress the price even further. With this version of the story and the loss of load probability, it's there all the time. You know, you know, sometimes it's very small, but that doesn't mean it goes away. So you don't have to worry about this declaring a shortage question. And it fits very naturally with the co-optimization with energy. And so, so this curve that you're talking about, this is, is this called the ORDC? Operating Reserve Demand Curve. And so what this is telling PJM is um, how much of this product to procure. Is that a fair summary? Um, it, not quite, but it's close. Okay. Uh, so th think about it as uh, co-optimized. So I can procure, I can procure, I have, let's suppose I had a fixed amount of generating capacity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but I had flexible energy demand, which okay. we don't, <laughs> but, but, but it's a hypothetical, a hypothetical. Um, and then you would say, I can, uh, lower the price, uh, and then demand will go up and then I'll have to use more, more of the capacity to produce energy and less for operating reserves. But if the operating reserves are worth more, um, I actually want more operating reserves and less energy. And so I want to get this balance where the marginal value of operating reserves and energy were just indifferent in terms of using the generators in those two cases. And so the co-optimization seeks that balance. It provides that balance between energy and operating reserves and calculates prices so that the price of energy is the price of the variable cost of energy. So it's costing $40 per megawatt hour to produce the energy plus the scarcity price which is $20 per megawatt hour for um, operating reserves at the margin. So the price, the total price of energy will be $50. And the price of operating reserves will be $20 in that situation. 
and a generator um, who was sitting there, the, the marginal generator who's looking at this is indifferent between producing energy and producing operating reserves, which is the condition we want to get. So to. that's that's the critical right. feature of this. Right, that's a critical feature, co-optimization, and then the prices are uh, consistent between generation and operating reserves. And what, and if you think about that, and this is what would made it appealing in the first instance when we first started talking about this, is that. And it also um, solves the problem of setting scarcity prices for energy. Because now when you get into an operating reserve, as operating reserves are re reducing, their value is going up at the margin. This is being added to the variable cost of energy so that the total price of energy is going up to reflect the scarcity. And so you're getting the right signals for load. You're getting the right signals for other generators, uh, for generators at the margin and uh, solving this problem of how do you get scarcity pricing uh, in the real time. So how do you calculate this ORDC? What goes into figuring it out? It seems like that, that can make a big difference in how the system works. Um, well, there are uh, uh, basically three components, and uh, one is the minimum uh, reserve requirement. Uh, so what, there's a level. Um, 1,500 megawatts of uh, synchronized reserves, for example, just to make up a number, and that comes from NERC standards and contingency requirements and all of that uh, uh, complicated electrical engineering story that has been e evolved over decades. Right. Um, uh, I'm picking that as given. Right, well, that, and that may or may not be based on any sound economic principles, but it's there, and so you take it as... For the pur purpose of what we're doing now, we're taking that as given. Yeah. And, they, 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 and they've been doing it for decades, and they will continue to do it in the immediate future. Uh, then we have the second, so that's, an, that's the threshold level, the minimum reserve. Then with the penalty factor that applies when the reserves fall below that minimum, or would apply when that falls below, and that's the $2,000. And so and there's a explanation of the history of that and how it compares with other emergency actions and, and so on. And this is partly a policy decision. I mean, this is not um, a precise science uh, kind of thing here because there's actually 50 different things they do as emergency actions and, you know, you're trying to get the average and get something that's representative and keep it relatively simple. So those are, those are two out of the three. And then the third one is this, if I'm, I have mis many reserves now, what's the probability that in the next 10 minutes or, or the next hour uh, we're going to run out of reserves because of unforeseen events? Um, and then have to uh, invoke emergency actions and then pay the penalty factor. So that's the loss of load probability that we're going to calculate. And, and so is that just based on sort of historical record in PJM of, of how the system actually works? Yes. The proposal is, I, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head all of the details, but the, they're looking back over three years, and they're and then know, as other people have done, they, they divide it up so... Uh, weekends are different than weekdays and, you know, different hours during the day because of different uh, peak loads and all, all these kinds of things. So it's it's broken up into various intervals historically. And then we look at the change in the load and the change in the solar and the change in the wind and the change in conventional... So this has to evolve. As the system evolves, this is going to evolve with it. It's going to evolve with it, right. It's an empirical uh, story and um, they have records on all of this information and, um, and the PJM filing goes through that story about, about what they're using, and I think it's it's perfectly reasonable. 
Um, and uh, it's been done by others. Uh, Texas, for example, has a similar approach to this. So um, the alternative approach would be a forward-looking modeling uh, story, simulation of what we think is going to happen based on all kinds of analysis. Um, this turns out to be quite hard, um, and, uh, and I don't think it's uh, any reason to believe it's better than just taking the empirical and just you know, going over the different time periods have different uh, expected effects and different probabilities. Uh, and, and adjusting that empirically going forward, I think that's a much more practical uh, and transparent to yeah. what's going on, and that's what they're doing. Um, so you said so. One problem this should solve is is the sort of the generator incentives that the generators should be indifferent as to whether they're in the energy or the reserve uh, market. Um, are there any other improvements to the system that this should make? Any other key uh, problems this might solve? There is one that's, that uh, is underappreciated, but I think it's actually quite important. So um, the, the, the operating reserve demand curve idea um, uh, was motivated in part by uh, the problem of uh, inadequate scarcity pricing. And uh, if we had load bidding and you, know, and you could get enough load to bid for five-minute intervals and they would adjust and so forth, a lot of the problems would be solved that way, uh, but we don't have that uh, very much. So it makes the uh, dealing with the operating reserve story more important. Um, but one of the things that it does is it solves the conundrum before that we had before, which is high prices during uh, tight situations could be reflect, well, tight situations, or high prices in tight situations could reflect market power and economic withholding. And um, if you leave it to generators to put in high offers uh, as the means for getting high prices when you have scarcity, what you're relying on is essentially economic withholding and market power. And it's always been a problem, which is how do we tell the difference between prices are high because they should be, because we're in a scarce situation, versus prices are high because people are withholding. Um, the operating reserve demand curve provides an answer to that question and says prices can go high because of scarcity of operating reserves, but it's completely consistent with generator offers being low. So it doesn't, so you could have, the, you have offer, if you think generators have market power and you say we have an offer cap and the offer cap for you is $1,000 or something, whatever the number is that you choose, um, well, then you would say uh, if we didn't have operating reserve demand curves, then the prices can't go above $1,000 because you have an offer cap at $1,000. But with an, uh, the operating reserve demand curve, we say, no, the offer cap is fine. Uh, and now the price of reserves goes to $2,000 or $3,000 and uh, when you get this cascading effect. And uh, that's added to the energy price. So uh, the price the generators get paid is the... $1,000 variable cost plus the $3,000 scarcity price, so they get paid $4,000, but they're not withholding. So it's not market power, it's scarcity pricing. And that's a very good thing. We, we, we like high prices, economists like high prices, when the system is very tight because it gives everybody the right signals. 
and we don't like high prices when it's caused by generators withholding supply in order to jack up the price. And, right. and so th this is a clean and principled way to recognize the difference, and uh, I think that'll be a big help uh, going forward. And what's the, you know, there's different types of generators on the system, and one way you might think about this is, is whether generators are flexible and able to respond very quickly to, to PJM system dispatch instructions versus an inflexible generator. The, the extreme can, you know, basically only go on or off and doesn't really have an ability to respond. Do, does this change in, in how the reserve market is going to be structured, does this affect these sort of two extremes differently, the flexible versus the inflexible resources? The flexibility questions are uh, uh, are addressed in part by the, the changes in the operating reserve pricing in the model here, but not completely. So, for example, um, we have different types of reserves that can respond at different times. Um, and if you can respond instantly because you're synchronized, uh, then you're going to get paid more because they're a higher valued reserve uh, than if you don't. So that helps uh, in this regard. Second is the amount of capacity that you will get credit for in the operating reserve calculation is a function of the speed with which you can ramp. Uh, so generators can increase their output, but they can't typically increase their output instantaneously, but it comes in gradually. And so over the 10 minutes, you can get a certain amount, and then that's the amount that we say uh, in your capacity. If you increase that ramp rate by making investments in the generator, uh, then obviously you can get credit for higher levels of operating reserves, and then you can sell more, and so on. So both of those things help uh, provide the more flexible resources can both sell more operating reserves and sell higher quality operating reserves and get higher prices associated with it. Um, then there's a second issue, uh, which is not addressed in this uh, filing, which is the, uh, uh, the dynamic uh, dispatch question, which is uh, prices and uh, going over time. So if we uh, thought about it as multiple dispatch periods, and we say the prices are going to be starting and they're going to go up and go up and go up and go up over this uh, time frame, and we may want to hold off some of the regeneration uh, so that's available later when the prices are higher and all that. That's a separate problem that, that deals with the flexibility question as well, um, and that's not addressed by uh, this, although. Uh, it, what, what's going on with the operating reserve demand curve will not be inconsistent with that, it's just that that's a separate issue. And then there's also intermittent resources, and typically wind and solar obviously is what we're talking about here, and those resources have typically tried to put as much energy into the market as they possibly can whenever they have it available, and that's motivated by energy prices and also the fact that they have certain policy incentives to produce as much as possible. Um, if you could imagine a world in the future where we have more of these resources and we're actually, you know, these resources, of course, they can always curtail, they can always produce less, but if they had the right incentives, they might choose actually not to produce as much as possible. They might intentionally curtail so they had flexibility if that was something the market valued. It, it, does this proposal at all connect to that issue for sort of incentives for intermittent resources to be able to be flexible if that's something the system really needs? Um, uh, it, there's no reason in principle why the uh, 
renewable generating resources can't be treated like any other uh, kind of generating resource as long as it meets the same requirements. So if the sun is shining and they're not producing electricity, but they are providing reserves, um, we could pay them for their reserves if they could flip a switch and suddenly start producing electricity if we needed them in the next five minutes. Um, there would be an issue to be uh, worried about, which is if, they, you know, if you wait five minutes and then the sun isn't shining, um, you know, they can't provide the, the, what you thought they could provide. So there's an issue there as to what the probability is that they'll be able to provide it. And that's not a new issue. That comes up under the, the, the same discussions in capacity markets and how much capacity you're going to get credit for. It'll be a much less serious problem in the very short run because our forecasting is pretty good over the very short run about wind and solar. Um, the problem is for not forecasting for the next half hour or hour. The problem is forecasting for tomorrow. Yeah. And the last thing is, um, you know, I know you don't spend a lot of time on capacity markets, but does this proposal interact at all with capacity markets? One thing that we've seen in PJM in particular is that capacity market revenues are an increasing percentage of the overall market. Some people like that, some people don't like that, but does this proposal uh, uh, counteract that trend at all? Um, well, it certainly uh, will interact with the uh, capacity markets because the capacity markets are net of payments or net eventually of the expected energy revenues um, that are going to be occurred, and this is going to affect energy revenues. And so, in principle, um, the direction should be that more uh, of the total uh, cost will be embedded in the real-time energy and reserve market and less will be in the capacity market uh, going forward. Um, they, uh, but it's not, uh, certainly not a one-to-one -one, uh, story and you, there, there gets to be, it has to do with forecasts and when you forecast and how fast these things adjust, but they definitely will interact with each other. So comments on this are going to be due, I believe, in mid-May. Um, is there anything else you think people should know about this that we haven't already talked about? Uh, I, I don't think uh, there, there's, uh, I think just in summary, this is a new a reform proposal from PJM, but this is not a new, the idea of trying to uh, compensate for the value of reserves by looking at the, uh, how much it costs when you don't have them and the probability that you're going to get into that situation is an old idea that's been used in many, many different uh, contexts. Um, the only thing that's new about it uh, in here or in the Texas situation or MISO and other places where they have different versions of this is the focus on the real time uh, for doing that as opposed to some long period, long forecast ahead. Uh, and that is a critical innovation and, uh, and a very good idea and it deals with the real incentive problems uh, that we actually have, uh, as opposed to our, I mean, the problem associated with the capacity markets, which is to provide incentives for resource adequacy, is that you have to, you're looking very far ahead. Um, and it's impossible to design the capacity market so that it produces exactly the right incentives every five minutes. <laughs> and, and, but it's actually important to have the right incentives every five minutes. And what we're trying to do here is get the incentives much closer to the real operating conditions, which might be on days when load in the aggregate is low. But uh, it's all relative, right? So if, if load is low and generation is low, you're in a scarce situation. <laughs> and so that's what you want to deal with. 
Um, so PJM's full filing is in uh, FERC docket EL19-58, uh, and you can find uh, Bill's paper that he wrote with, with his colleague Susan Pope in that docket. It's also available on whogan.com, which is a wealth of information on all things electricity markets. You could spend uh, the next many months of your life just reading all the papers on that. Um, and uh, Bill, thank you so much for uh, explaining this to us. Thank you. Thank you.